From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you catching us on one of our affiliate stations. I think we're closing in on 40 across North America. Those of you who listen to the podcast at uh, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com. Uh, those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the Conspiracy Show app. Those of you watching the YouTube live stream. And please check out the channel, the Conspiracy Show YouTube channel, and hit that red sub button. I think we're closing in on 8,000 subscribers. Uh, those of you who join us in the YouTube live chat every week without fail, uh, however and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Researcher James Abbott is standing by. His book, An Outsider's Guide to UFOs, is it's a good one. Uh, this summer, I want to talk to you about um, what's going on. Occulticon. All things curious, all things occult. That's up in Holstein, Ontario, for three days, beginning July 13th through to the 15th. Occulticon, where there'll be lots of speakers under the lecture tents and vendors and pagans and Wiccans and, and Druids and people who are experts on uh, the tarot and so forth. I'll be there on the 14th, a Saturday, the 14th at 1 p.m. under the lecture tent. And then I'll be part of the Paranormal Roundtable at 3 p.m. Again, that's a Culticon, July 13th, 14th, and 15th. You can get a three-day pass. You can camp there uh, for the for two nights. And, and again, a uh, really cool uh, campground, this stone circle. I can't wait to check this out. It's kind of a replica of Stonehenge, but not exactly. And uh, I hope to see you there, occulticon.ca, occulticon.ca for more information and to buy tickets. All right. My next guest has documented 40 of the most important UFO cases, nine official projects and reports on the subject, 13 fascinating strange UFO characteristics, 20 possible explanations for UFOs, the very best photographic and video evidence. It's all documented in his book, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs. This is just volume one, Mystery and Science. James Abbott is a highly experienced researcher, he spent years studying this timeless debate as an outsider with no vested interests. He presents all sides of the story without fear or favor. James Abbott, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good morning, Richard. Yes, I'm fine, thank you, and thanks very much for having me on the show. My pleasure. We, we spoke uh, a number of weeks ago on, on Coast to Coast, and we had a little more time on, on Coast, so this will be more of a truncated version. Uh, but it, it, it does fascinate me uh, as a researcher, and you build yourself as an outsider. What does that mean? How are you an outsider in this field? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I've been thinking about that myself for many, many years. I don't think you're ever an outsider for anything. Um, what basically what there are in the UFO universe, if you like, are people who are what I call the diehards, the people who believe in something one way or the other, and they um, hold to those beliefs without really thinking too much or too hard about it. They are they're, they're the zealots, and they have good reason for thinking the way they do. And they're either massively against the whole concept of UFOs or they're um, unbelievably for it. Now, somewhere in the middle are people who have uh, doubts. They don't quite know what's going on. They get influenced by the media to believe that people are, um, 
well, maybe kooks and cranks who believe in UFOs, and therefore they steer away from the subject. Well, the book is for them. It's for people who, who may have doubts and are a little bit frightened of the subject. But um, uh, what I wanted to do really was to present the facts for them and say, well, this is actually what is happening at the moment. And although it is absolutely stunning, it's what's happened. It's what people are seeing. When you look at the world of ufology today and the way it's being studied and the way it's being presented, there's a saying that's very vogue these days, and it's, don't get too far over your skis. Don't get too far yeah. out over your skis. In other words, I guess this comes from the ski jumpers, and if you lean too far over your skis, I mean, you can you can go you know down the hill ass over tea kettle. Do you find that the world of ufology has gotten too far out over its skis in terms of the assumptions that it's making about this phenomena? About a year ago, I would have said yes. I would have said uh, it's absolutely, it's, uh, it's way out over the edge of its skis. But today, I think quite the reverse. I think in some ways, the world of ufology is behind the curve. The latest sightings by U.S. Navy pilots are absolutely stunning. And the evidence that's being released, um, albeit reluctantly by the U.S. Department of Defense, means that we have... Clear, I mean, very, very clear and very, very solid evidence of something happening over both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans over a 10-year, 12-year span. And for me, I don't care how many other sightings there have been, and, and there have been some very, very compelling ones. These are, these are, you know, about as good as you're ever going to get. You dedicate a chapter to this next area in your book, Seeing is Believing. I can't think of another field where there is so much photographic evidence, so much video evidence, and yet we have these blinders on. Even, you know, skeptics, when confronted with photographic evidence or video evidence of of something, will say, okay, well, I'll concede that point, but not so in this field. What's going on? What is the psychology at work here? The, The psychology, I think, is the psychology of fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the unusual uh, human beings are very, very protective, and they will they'll believe anything if you actually show them. And sometimes they'll believe things that actually don't exist. You know, mag- magicians at the theatre uh, produce magic that people think has actually happened, but it ha- but it hasn't. So humans are very strange. But one of the things they are very, very good at is protecting themselves. Uh, the the whole field of UFOs and ghosts and goblins and goodness knows what else is is something that people well but they use laughter as a defense against it so they poke fun at people who see ufos and they think they all run around with tinfoil hats but but in fact what's actually happening is that the 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 psychology blinds them it stops them from seeing what is really there and it's it's happened in the past after all we've had you know we used to have witches in both europe and in in the uh in north america and the, the the local population would would laugh at them, but live in fear of them and try to ignore them if they possibly could. And I think that's what's happening with UFOs. People fear the, the subject because it's uh, it's something we don't understand. Is that a little bit like normal biases? In times of some cataclysmic event, there seems to be a couple of types of people. You have the people that will just say, well, there's nothing wrong, nothing going on here. Let's just continue on as normal. And then there are the people who say, no, 
we've got we've got a problem here. We need to take the bull by the horns. So is that what's happening? Normal biasy people are just saying, I I don't I don't want to know. Yeah, I think I think it is what's happening. I think pe- people tend to revert to something they understand and something they feel comfortable with. So consequently, if somebody says that they've seen it, or you can you can actually see it with the with the latest um, videos with the U- U.S. Navy videos. They've they've been released now. I could make a very good argument for those being the most uh, important UFO uh, releases in many, many years, in fact, ever. Um, and yet the, the most of the world goes about its normal business and uh, about nine out of ten people don't even know those videos exist. So, yes, we do protect ourselves. We, we, we cling to normality. We have our comfort blankets. But the scientific community isn't supposed to be about that. Where is the intellectual curiosity? You don't have to conclude that we're talking that these things are piloted by, you know, little green men from some distant galaxy. Just as a phenomena, though, where is the intellectual curiosity? Where are the scientists saying, wow, what is going on here? It may be nothing, nothing even close to what some people suppose it to be, but it is a fascinating phenomenon, yet no intellectual curiosity. Yeah, I think scientists are always intellectually curious, but they are also human. They fear ridicule. They fear being cast out uh, into the cold. I mean, there is a sense in which scientists are exactly like the rest of us. You know, if we get if we get too far out in our jobs and the bosses start looking at us and wondering what on earth is this guy doing, then um, we, we stand the chance of maybe seeing a, a paycheck at the end of the week and it will be the last one. And the scientists fear that. They fear that um, if they leave the herd, that they will be, uh, they will be castigated and cast into our outer darkness forever. So it's, it's not a lack of, of intellectual curiosity. It's a fear of, of being different. Um, and scientists are just like anybody else for that. They don't want to be seen to be different. I mentioned the photographic evidence. We're coming up on a break here. We'll start the discussion now and, and, and um, yeah. continue, continue after the break. But you've compiled what you think are some of the very best photos and video evidence. And one of my favorites has to do with Edwards Air Force Base back in 1957. And um, uh, a very interesting character, astronaut Colonel Gordon Cooper. Let's begin talking about the sighting at Edwards Air Force Base, and then we'll pick it up on the other side as well. So, uh, do, yeah. do you mean... All the sightings, all the ones that were photographed. This was the one in, in 1957 when there was video taken of a craft touching down. We, there's the music. We'll, we will pick this up on the other side. The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, James Abbott, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Curiosity. Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. It's very early in the UK, and uh, we're very pleased and privileged that uh, James Abbott is up so early over there. He's uh, here talking about his book, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs. He's a serious researcher and taking a look at this from a perspective of someone with, without fear or favor. 
Uh, we were talking about some of the best photographic uh, or film video evidence, and uh, we were discussing the 1957 incident at Edwards Air Force Base, and astronaut Gordon Cooper was um, was there while well, he was a colonel at that time. Not a, Was he an astronaut in 1957? He hadn't entered into the program, I guess. He was still just sort of strictly a military guy, correct? Yeah, this was this was 1957 actually when when this uh, event happened, um, and he was an astronaut in in 67, but but, but he was just a, a he was a captain when when this this happened. And what did he witness? Well, it was it was he didn't actually witness anything. Um, what happened was he had uh, two of his lads were out on the uh, on, in the desert setting up on the Salt Lake, setting up um, an experiment. They were, they were testing a landing system, an automatic landing system, and they were using very high-quality cameras and film to try and track the aircraft as it followed the, um, the radio signals into the landing space. Um, and they were setting up about 8 o'clock in the morning, um, and Cooper just let them get on with it. He was back at base. But um, about an hour after they went out there, they came back to base, and they ran up to Cooper and said, look, uh, we, we, we've just seen a UFO, sir. And Cooper was very skeptical about the whole thing, and naturally. And he said, uh, I, I don't suppose you actually took any film of it. And they said, well, actually, we did. So Cooper said, okay, um, give me the film, and we'll, uh, we'll think about it. And these guys were very reliable. So Gordon Cooper was, was very um, convinced by what they'd, they'd seen and said. They actually said that um, a craft landed 50 yards away from them while they were setting up their equipment. They managed to get some shots of it before it um, it lifted and flew away. So Cooper was neither neither believing or disbelieving at this point. He um, he phoned his superiors, and they said to him, "Well, look, get the film developed, but do not look at any of the photographs, and we'll send a courier to get both the film and the photographs." within 24 hours. So Cooper did that. He sent it to the base labs, got it, got it developed, and sure enough, the, the uh, uh, courier arrived for the equipment, for the, sorry, for the films, and Cooper sent them off to higher authorities. But before he did, he'd only been told not to look at the photographs. He did look at the film that had been developed um, and ran a few feet of it through his, through his hands against the window. And what he saw, he said, was extremely convincing and very compelling. Um, and he, particularly, was a believer from that, that day on. Um, what he did expect, however, was that he would be interviewed and that his men would be interviewed subsequently about this event because it was quite a stunning sighting um, 50 yards away from these guys. Well, you know, that never happened. It never, ever happened. And from that day on, Gordon Cooper who's one of the bravest men probably, you know, one would ever want to know, um, believed that the, the U.S. government was covering things up. Sure, he was part of the uh, the Mercury um, space program, if I remember correctly, or was it Gemini? And no, he was Mercury. Mercury. And, uh, I think he flew on one of the Gemini missions, but he was certainly Mercury, and he was, when I say he was brave, I mean, this guy actually fell asleep in orbit. Um, he fell asleep before he was... Um, launched once now i mean in those days well even in these days riding a rocket is a pretty dangerous thing to do in those days you were literally being strapped on top of a ballistic missile 
And these, these chaps were taking their life in their hands a, a big time. So, you know, for a guy to fall asleep while he was doing it shows how, um, how cool he was. And on one occasion, he actually piloted his Gemini craft back to Earth using just his wristwatch um, because the computers had broken down. Oh, my gosh. That's a, that's a real American hero, folks. And he never deviated from that story until the day he died, correct? That's correct, yeah. Never, never changed his mind, never stopped accusing the American government of, being, of covering up the, the UFO, the whole UFO thing. But many other people have done the same. I mean, you know, Edgar Mitchell, another astronaut, says pretty much the same thing. And there are officers and eminent people all over the world, in fact, who are saying that their governments are doing the same thing. Uh, another uh, military man, this is going back to 1952 in Utah, Tremonton photos, and this was a trained, this was a chief Navy photographer, the U.S. chief Navy photographer who, uh, who took some images. Tell me about Tremonton, Utah. Yeah, the Utah one is, is really interesting because um, Delbert Newhouse was uh, a warrant officer, a Navy warrant officer. He'd got about 2,000 hours in the air taking uh, military photographs and so on. So he knew his equipment, he knew his, he knew his stuff. He'd been reposted and he was driving across um, the state to his new posting with his family. And obviously, you know, that takes quite a few days. So they were stopping overnight and then getting on in the car and on this particular day they'd really just set off that morning and they were they were just just outside the, the town of Tremonton when his wife started saying to Delbert um plus stop the car you know um there's some things out there in the sky you've got to see them and he was obviously he wanted to get on because he'd got he'd got a lot of miles to put under that car before they could stop again and he did not want to be distracted. So he fought this for a few minutes, but naturally, as, as in most cases, the wife won, and he stopped the car and got out and looked at these things that she'd seen in the sky. Well, they were evidently at that point almost overhead the, uh, the car, and he was absolutely stunned, ran to the back of the car to get his 16-millimeter camera out. Well, if you've ever used one of those cameras, you know that they take just a bit of time to get set up. But he was an expert. He got it set up in minutes. And he was able to take some film of some object in the sky in, against a, a clear blue uh, Utah sky. And they were, they were amazing. But what was even more amazing was the story that he and his family told of these things being metallic, being round, silent, moving incredibly fast and in different directions and so on. But then again, you see, this is another story of a film that went missing because he sent it to his superiors. The film was um, developed and he saw most of it. And indeed, Project Blue Book saw most of it. Uh, you know, Edward Ruppelt describes this in his book. Um, uh, but no, Newhouse was always very upset about the thing because he, he always swore that the authorities deleted what was per perhaps the most compelling part of that film, which was of one of the uh, craft or objects, whatever they were, departing very, very fast by itself in a different direction. Um, and he did he tracked it with his camera deliberately to give an impression of speed, but this, this bit of the film went missing and has never surfaced since. 
uh, he was a, an officer in the Navy or the chief photographer in the, in the Navy. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that when, we're, when we have military people uh, come forward and talk about UFOs or when we have uh, police uh, come forward, keeping in mind that, you know, police testimony in court carries a lot of weight. If it's your word against theirs, you know, that you ran a stop sign, they win because they're supposed to be <laughs> trained observers. And yet... When they come forward and talk about UFOs, all of a sudden the skeptics say, well, they can make mistakes. You, 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 you write a lot about that in, in, in the book. What's going on there? Yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? The, um, the authorities are... They're, 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 you know, you've got to imagine that there are thousands and thousands of police officers out there and thousands and thousands of senior police officers some of them, just like in any job, some of them are more fearful for their jobs than others. Some, if, if a police officer comes back to you and says, look, sir, I've just seen an object in the sky and it did this and it did that, some, some people would have the bravery and the, and the guts to say, well, okay, I'll pass it on to higher authority and you, you tell you know, one of the UFO organizations. But most would say, look, no, I don't want. I don't want the public getting to know that my officers go around seeing things in the sky. Um, so you know, next thing you'll be seeing fairies. So just keep it to yourself and don't tell anyone, and we'll we'll try and sweep it under the carpet. And that I think is the normal reaction of most police officers. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think there is a a national plan to silence the police about UFOs. I think it's just it's just a natural human reaction when they think they're going to be ridiculed. Have you been in touch with Gary Hesseltine? He's a UK uh, former police officer, I believe, who uh, has a, a website dedicated to police sightings of UFOs in in Great Britain. Yeah, I, no, I haven't. I've tried on a couple of occasions, but uh, last time I tried, he was away on on uh, vacation, so I couldn't get to to talk to him. But yeah, I've tried, and and yeah, the 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 accounts of police sightings are extremely compelling, um, and you you can talk about in France, in Britain, in the Netherlands, in Norway, in the United States, in Canada, of course. All sorts of police people are seeing these things because they're out at night. Um, you know, only the other day there on the um, uh, on the Coast to Coast interview, there was a chap called in, and he'd been a police officer for 27 years and hadn't told anybody about his sighting, but he and his uh, colleagues saw a UFO while they were standing outside a bar one night. Oh, that's right. Yes, now I remember that call. Yes. Yeah. So... What are we um, What are we going to do about this? In terms of you know, we've had so many uh, different you know official government sanctioned uh, studies. We had Project Blue Book. We had before that we had Grudge, which was obviously designed just to debunk um, the whole idea of UFOs. I guess probably most of them have been <laughs> have been created with that in that with that in mind. But what would it take in your mind? to conduct a proper scientific uh, a study of UFOs? Well, number one, I think, Richard, it's got to be international. Um, anything that's set up on a national basis probably would not succeed. And you've only got to look at the UFO organizations. Over the years, they've done sterling work, I mean, incredibly good work, 
um, from MUFON downwards. Some of them are good, some of them aren't so good, um, but they all have hundreds, if not thousands, of very willing volunteers who try to get to the bottom of things. And uh, to be honest, they do an incredibly good job. But, but they haven't really got too far because they haven't got the money to be able to do that. Um, so domestically, I don't think there's going to be too much chance of uh, any, any light at the end of the tunnel until we get a big international effort together. Now, you know, given the jealousy, the inter, inter-organizational jealousy of most UFO organizations, indeed all organizations all over the world, the, the best opportunity, I think, will be a brand new organization set up with um, a lot of money. Um, whether that's ever going to be possible, I don't know. But I think there are enough billionaires scattered around the world to be able to fund something that would give us a reasonable chance of success. I'm not a huge fan of the United Nations, at, at least as you know, the, the, as a political body, the General Assembly, and so forth. You know, it seems to be run by a lot of tin pot dictators uh, who sit on human rights councils and things like that. It's a kind of absurd in many regards. But uh, w- w- what do you think about a UN agency uh, sponsoring such a study? I mean, it has yeah, to have some gravitas of a, a, a. It has to have some sort of sanction, governmental sanction, don't you think? Yeah, I, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think it does. I'm a, I'm, I'm a great believer in private enterprise, and I think um, the United Nations gets slower and slower with every decade that goes past. It takes them several years even to get together a peacekeeping mission um, with any success, and to do anything which was really, really difficult. I think it would be, well, for a start, get governments to agree to it. Uh, Security Council, you know, all of, all of the major players, um, the United States and the UK and France, they've all got vetoes. Um, Russia might put a veto in and China might think it was nice and mischievous to do that. So, yeah, I think trying to get the UN to do something would be, uh, would be beating your head against a brick wall. I think the only way of doing this will be a private organization, but, and the eminence, I think, the status, um, the quality will come from the way the research is done and the sorts of universities that get involved. What is your take on, on um, the current disclosure movement? We had, of course, the, 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 the uh, New York Times article that came out in December of 2017. We've had some, you mentioned the, um, the Navy uh, video footage. Um, now it's, it seems to have fallen back into that old pattern where there's a, you know, the 48 hour news cycle, people get really excited and then once again it's just simply forgotten. Uh, what, what do you make of what's going on in the disclosure movement right now? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The 48 hour news cycle kills most things and people go about their normal business. You know, there's nothing to see here folks, off, off you go. Um, it's not surprising. We have a tendency, and it's a self-protective tendency, to forget almost everything once it's been on the news. And in some ways, that's great, because some things are just too harrowing to remember. And I think what people do is they've got better things to do in their lives than to worry about what, what U.S. Navy pilots saw in 2004. So, again, you see, trying to get anything moving is going to take a long time. And the 
the only way of doing it, in my view, is to get a, a big organization together to do this in the background while everybody is going around uh, doing their normal things. All right, James, we'll take another quick time out, come back, and continue right. our discussion. The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, James Abbott, right here on The Conspiracy Show. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Coming up uh, next week on The Conspiracy Show, we're, we're coming up on the uh, the anniversary of the death of uh, Hollywood actor uh, David Carradine, who died under very somewhat bizarre, mysterious circumstances in a hotel in Bangkok. And uh, his ex-wife, who's a good friend of the program and mine, Marina Anderson, will be here, along with a psychic by the name of Michael Bodine. And we'll uh, we'll try to get to the bottom of what may have happened to David Carradine. Uh, he passed away June the 5th, uh, 2009. I always loved that uh, t- television show growing up, uh, Kung Fu. Uh, then in the second hour next week, Nick Redfern is back with another book. Uh, he's just constantly writing. This one's called The Black Diary, and it's about uh, black-eyed children and, and um, uh, not men in black, but women in black. Uh, always look forward to a visit from Nick Redfern. Right now, James Abbott stays with us, The Outsider's Guide uh, to UFOs. And um, you uh, you talk about sort of the four theories as to what UFOs might be about. And, of course, we have, you know, intergalactic craft. Uh, the second one has to be... Um, is about you know the idea that they are ma- they're they're from here on Earth. The other one is uh, time or dimensional travelers, and fourth, even weirder theories. I want to talk about uh, n- number two, and that is that that, that they 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 are here on Earth. Does this include craft that are actually advanced aerospace weapons or aerospace? Uh, you know, created by by humans, uh, perhaps you know at uh, Area 51 or uh, you know Wright Patterson, or are we talking about aliens that uh, that live here, perhaps subterranean um, civilizations and so forth? Yeah, the answer is I don't know, but all of those things are possible. Of course, it is possible that we have got the technology, and Roswell gave us a start, perhaps back in 47 and that governments have developed uh, craft which can do the things that people see in the sky. And it's also possible that there are aliens living on the planet who have keep their, um, keep their craft in garages near where they work and go flying around the place and doing various things um, uh, at various times. But the first theory, the theory that we have developed advanced flying objects, to me, it doesn't make sense because if we had, I think we would be making a lot more money from them um, and governments would be doing a lot more with them. But they are still, I mean, governments are spending billions, for example, even trying to find something as simple as how to not make a sonic boom when you uh, fly faster than the speed of sound. Well, these craft that people see, these objects, do seem to be able to do this without even uh, breaking sweat. So uh, in the last 70 years, if, if mankind had the ability to deconstruct and rebuild these things, I think we'd have done it and we'd have made a lot of money out of it. Um, and today, 
today's transport system would look a lot different to the way it does. The second approach, uh, aliens on, the, on Earth, well, yeah, again, uh, there's nothing to say that that hasn't happened, and there are a lot of theories out there that, says it, uh, that say it has. But again, why be so visible about it? What is it that they want to do that involves um, having vast, triangular, lighted objects flying slowly over um, populated areas like the Hudson Valley back in the 80s or Belgium in the 90s or Britain in the 2000s. It just it doesn't make sense for them to do that sort of thing. I'm quite prepared to believe that there may be alien bases on Earth, but why all the, uh, the, the, the sort of obvious flying around and the dancing around in full sight of people? It's true. That's the paradox. One, they're not landing on the White House lawn and saying, here we are. And then on the other hand, as you say, there are mass sightings of slowly hovering above Phoenix uh, with their lights blinking, saying, here we are, here we are. So they're being very coy, aren't they? Come here, come here, come here, go away, go away, go away. Yep, it is baffling. But then that's what makes the UFO issue uh, so compelling and so interesting. Because if you don't, if you don't go overboard on, on one side or the other, the middle ground of UFOs is probably the most mysterious Thing that humanity has facing it at the moment. Um, there's a bit of science that we have to learn. There are, there are parts of, of the mysterious that people don't understand, like the creatures, the Hopkinsville things. Uh, the, the whole thing is, is an incredible mystery. Um, but the, the point is, why do they do it? Um, and on the one hand, I've said in the book, you know, one of the simplest examples is tourism with a smattering of scientific and military investigation. <laughs> These things um, exhibit all the characteristics of a tourist coach going around looking at all the sites. So they drift quietly over towns. They, they don't mind anybody seeing them because they know, they know will not believe it afterwards and will certainly not believe anybody who tells, tells that they've seen it. So what they are, I don't know. But made on Earth, I don't think so. Well, we're coming up on a break here again, but on the other side, we'll get to number three as a possible explanation, which involves time or dimensional travelers. And then, believe it or not, there's something even weirder than that, which is a possible explanation. We'll discuss with James Abbott, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. James Abbott is uh, with us, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, and we were rattling off the uh, the list of possible explanations for what these UFOs might be, and we're talking about the 5% of sightings that really truly are unexplained. Uh, number three on the list, uh, as you point out in the book, makes may make some people roll their eyes, but that is something that we have to at least consider, and that is that these are time or dimensional travelers. What do you mean by that specifically? Okay, these theories about time or dimensional travelers are not new. Um, as you say, they make people roll their eyes. And to be honest, it made me roll my eyes when I first read about these things a few years ago. The idea of time travel has been around for a long time, of course. Uh, you know, H.G. Wells was uh, instrumental in making it common culture. 
Um, and multi-dimensions are something that have been sort of floated around the science fiction community for a long time. But the fact is now we are beginning to understand the physics of time and, and dimensions. And it, it, it is actually weirder and stranger than we could ever have thought. Um, you know, you've only got to read some of the stuff that uh, Professor Nomura of Berkeley is putting out at the moment, and you, that you begin to realize that the universe is a very, very strange place. So he, he believes, and he has the physics to, uh, to back it up, that the, the universe may be, in fact, multiple universes. So we would call those dimensions or, or bubbles in which other things happen. And these are infinite absolutely infinite. He also believes that time may, time itself, which is probably the most powerful force in the universe, I mean, nothing happens without time going in one direction, but he believes that it may actually be a matter of probability and that it only exists in the eyes of the, the beholder, pretty much like most of what happens in quantum physics. Now, I said, I was telling somebody the other day there about this, and they said, oh God, you know, that's just weird. It's so far out there, we cannot even begin to believe it. So I said, well, okay, here's, here's another one. How about the fact that you don't exist? And they said, what? I said, well, you really don't exist. You know, you've got, you are built in what we understand are, are things that exist in normal physics, you know, particles, atoms, protons. And he said, yep, yeah, that's absolutely right. I said, yeah, but what are the atoms and protons made of? And he said, well, there are smaller particles, and that's true. But if you get down to that level, that quantum level, those particles actually do not exist in anything other than probability. So we, the brick wall that is around us all, those brick walls don't exist. We don't exist. Now, if that's not strange, then, and, and if you can't then think, well, maybe time and dimensional travelers could exist, then, well, you're not thinking straight. So our reality is just one gigantic Schrodinger cat experiment. Is that the idea? Yeah, could be. Um, and what we're talking about here is something maybe that uh, is um, a matter of probability. It seems that the whole universe operates uh, at a level below the one we see and understand. And many of the scientists that are looking into this, and this, is, this goes back to your point, I think, about science taking things seriously. They may not be taking UFOs seriously, but what they are taking seriously is, is the science which underlies where the, the, how UFOs probably, possibly, could um, operate. And that is that there is, there is no certainty anymore. We don't live in a Newtonian universe where the mechanics work and they work every time in exactly the same way. We live in what is effectively a probabilistic universe in which things only work if you look at them. Now, the possibility that we are talking about a spiritual phenomena, that these could be from an angelic realm, uh, for those who believe in a biblical narrative or one of the major theistic religions who believe in angels, would that be covered by number three, time and dimensional travelers? Yeah, it could be. I mean, whatever you call whatever it might be happening it is something that is beyond what we know at the moment. It's, you know, a lot of people think they know what's going on and a lot of people believe in what is going on, but, but we don't actually know at the moment. Um, and 
you know, if I was to talk to one of my physicist friends nowadays, he would say to me, we would probably never know for sure because truth, as you, uh, you know, as one often hears it put, actually doesn't exist. There is no such thing because it only exists in one universe at one particular time and in one particular set of circumstances. And number four, which is just <laughs> goes totally off the rails, is J. Allen Hynek talked about mind and matter. So explain what yes. this fourth explanation is for UFOs. Okay, the fourth explanation or fourth possible explanation for what we see is that they are just mental images, that they don't actually exist in any physical sense. And again, this ties in with number three and what we are already beginning to understand about the way that the universe acts, that in fact things don't work the way we've always believed them to work and the way we were taught at school that they worked. And Alan Hynek came up with this idea that maybe some of these things that people see in the sky are not actually there. They're projections that something somewhere is projecting the images into people's minds. And again, you, you sort of occasionally find accounts of people who see UFOs and say, they made me feel better, or as soon as I thought come towards me, they did come towards me. And as soon as I got scared, they went away again. And it's it's those sort of things that made Alan Hynek think, well, maybe these things are mental rather than um, original, uh, rather than physical. And, of course, then you've got the, the theory that maybe some of them are actually living creatures. And, um, you know, this is going back to the Scots um, and Ivan Sanderson's theories about uninvited visitors, that, in fact, we, the universe is is just as strange as we are beginning to understand it to be and that out there there are creatures whole creatures that are so large um, that they can appear to be objects and that the creatures themselves um, control not control but can influence minds now it's funny because I had a, a conversation with uh, Grant Cameron, a noted Canadian ufologist and who has yeah. scoured presidential uh, libraries looking for documents pertaining to UFOs, particularly the Clinton Library. And uh, he uh, is now of the mind that it, we're probably talking about number four. In fact, he, he talks about a conversation he had with, I believe it was a, pr a professor at either Harvard or Princeton who... Uh, had knowledge of, you know, the, the infamous Majestic 12 group, those that are charged with keeping a lid on the UFO secret. And what this gentleman told him, his name escapes me, um, uh, but he, he, he said, and if you really want to understand the UFO phenomena, you have to understand psychic ability, which was also something that Ben Rich said, who was, of course, the, uh, the director of Skunk Works, um, the... Um, Boeing's experimental um, R&D uh, branch. So is that what we're talking about, do you think, with number four, that this it has to do with consciousness and psychic ability? Yes, it could. It could indeed. The, the, again, you see, the whole thing is about our lack of knowledge about the way things really work in the universe and our lack of understanding of how people communicate. We, we know, for example, that um, psychic ability and tele telepathic ability can exist you know we know it can't be replicated a lot of the time but we we also know that there are too many stories of people having 
mental contact with another person, even if it's just a feeling that they um, are in trouble or a feeling that they are, um, that, you know, that they are happy or whatever, we, we know that all of that stuff exists and we, 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 we tend to lay it off as a, um, an imagination and overactive, uh, um, you know, sort of people. But it's, um, it's possible, yes, it's, it, it's entirely possible because until we understand how two particles, two quantum particles can be in different places at the same time, until we understand how those same particles can effectively communicate over astronomical distances faster than the speed of light, then we, we really shouldn't be writing off things like mental images and psychic ability. And yet, there does seem to be some physicality to this phenomena as well. Now, we're told that Robert Bigelow, um, who is involved in, in um, ATIP, the um, Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program, and this was sort yeah. of behind the, uh, the December New York Times article, uh, we're told that maybe this whole disclosure thing has been has been turned over to him and that he has sitting in a warehouse somewhere you know little bits and pieces of metal and parts from these craft uh if that's the case why doesn't he just show us or or is 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 he now going to uh uh sort of hoard this material and this technology uh and, in in which case we'll never have disclosure yeah, I, yeah, Robert Bigelow um, and the whole Bigelow thing is, is just as much of a mystery as the UFO. Um, we've, um, we've been trying to get to the bottom of that for a while. So it, it gives me a little bit of hope that there is something happening out there that will uh, give future generations just as much fun as we've had in, in getting into the UFO phenomena. But yeah, if he's got bits sitting in a warehouse somewhere and he's um, doing anything with them, my guess is what he's trying to do is to understand them. Um, we, we simply, well, I think it's more likely that we don't understand what these bits and pieces of metal or uh, technology are and that we're trying to do it. And until we do, I don't think Bigelow or the U.S. government or any government, the Canadian, the British, the French, whatever, will start announcing or disclosing anything. I get the impression, though, after reading your book that Ultimately, though, this may be just unknowable. What are your thoughts? Uh, this, this may be unknowable, yes. I, I, I do think that. The, at the end of the day, there are things that we are able to understand and comprehend. Um, and one of the things that a lot of people have said to me when they've, they've commented on the book is that this could be one of those things that we have to mature by maybe another 100, 200, maybe 1,000 years before we have the mental capacity to understand what is happening. This is Volume 1, Mystery and Science. Uh, is Volume 2 in the works, James? Yes, yes it is, yes. Can you, uh, can you tease us a little bit? What is the, uh, the subtitle of this one? Uh, the subtitle is, is Curiouser and Curiouser, and it goes into the 21st century sightings of UFOs and also some of the sort of science issues that we've been talking about uh, this morning, the way that, uh, you know, we, we simply don't understand what's going on. But Volume 2 is, yeah, about a few, few months from being published. All right, and this is available at uh, Amazon and all good bookstores. Again, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, 
James Abbott. Thanks for getting up so early in the morning uh, in the UK. I appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. All right, my thanks to Albert and Ryan and Sebastian Hearn. Great job behind the big uh, audio board there, Sebastian. Thank you. Good to see you again. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.